We are continuing on from the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> We're going to be in the back half of chapter 4 this morning. Um, and before I get into that, I, I want to make some comments with regard to the U.S. elections, and um, this will flow in naturally to my message as well. As you know, this last election cycle, the four years in the United States, was a wild, raucous ride. Uh, typically, we would not speak to it, but because the world's eyes were on this election, I feel like there's some lessons and some things that we need to take away from it. And uh, so I'm just going to call out a few things with regard uh, to what happened this past week. First thing I want to say here is that through the elections, God has spoken. And... Uh, this comes from Romans 13, in which Paul clearly says to us, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. What this passage teaches us that just as Trump, President Trump, was elected four years ago by the hand of God, so Mr. Biden was elected this week by the hand of God. And just like we have prayed for and respected and honored President Trump these past four years, we should do the same with President Biden in the next upcoming four years. There should be no difference in how we act towards a new president. Now, of course, I'm taking these principles from the states and applying it for us here in Canada. But because the scene has unfolded for us so vividly, I'm speaking to this from the US election standpoint. There should be no difference in how we act towards a new president. This is how we distinguish ourselves as Christians. It's how we show ourselves to be peacemakers as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Our kingdom is not of this world. Hence, we respect and honor and pray for all who are in authority, no matter the party affiliation, because we see them as part of God's hand. This is the strong and explicit teaching of this passage. In the end, rulers do not answer to the voters, right? This is what politicians like to say. Oh, we're going to answer to the voters. That's not what Romans 13 teaches. It teaches that they will answer to God because they are God's servant. This is a fiery prospect. When a ruler dies, he will stand before God to give an account for all the legislation, all the policies, every decision that he or she made for good or for evil. Now you know why God tells us to pray for leaders. They don't answer to the voters, they answer to God. Trump is going to answer to God. Obama is going to answer to God. Clinton is going to answer to God. Trudeau will answer to God. Harper will answer to God. Chrétien will answer to God. Our respect and honor is not based on political affiliation, but rather that they have been ordained by God 
to be his servant, whether we like them or not. Thus, the Bible says we're to submit to them for conscience sake, as it said there in verse 5, meaning that this is an issue of right and wrong. We tend to think in democracy, we can choose if we want to respect or disrespect the leader because that's our choice. We're free. We can do whatever we hoover damn will please. I'll like him if I want or I'll hate him if I want. For Christians, that's not how we see rulers. It's wrong to disrespect our leaders. This attitude and behavior is what makes us distinctive as Christians in the political arena. It doesn't mean that we can't disagree with our leaders, but we're to remain respectful and civil in our criticism and not curse them, as has become the new norm. Our preference or dislike for a candidate has nothing to do with our call to respect and honor those who are ruling. Our preferences are secondary. We respect and honor as a matter of obedience to God's word. You think about King David and how he was anointed to be the next king, and yet Saul persecuted David to the point of wanting to kill him. There was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David had many opportunities to take revenge and even to take out Saul. But he never did it, and what was his attitude? to respect the authority that God had put over him even when he tried to kill David. And after Saul was unhonorably killed in war by the Amalekites, David talked to the man who observed his death and the, and the young man who was from the Amalekites said, yeah, I'm the one who killed him because Saul asked me to kill him. And David said, were you not afraid of God's anointed? And had him struck down. And so David is a perfect example of the attitude we need to have towards our authorities, even if we completely dislike them. This is why Christians are the greatest asset to any society. We sow peace and not discord. So this morning, President Biden, we honor you as the next president of the United States. Second thing I want to say about the election is that Trump, President Trump's assignment has been completed. I alluded to this last week, and from my perspective, there are two things that have distinguished his tenure. The first is that he's appointed three Supreme Court justices. Now, these justices will rule for years to come and wield influence for many years beyond the four years he was in office. His legacy through them will shape society and impact generations to come, even decades. His policies on the economy and environment and military and race and trade, you know, all the wars between Canada and the United States and the whole NAFTA thing got torn up. All these policies, even around health care, these can be easily changed from one administration to another, but not justice appointments. Since the formation of the U.S. court in 1790, there have only been 120 justices, and on average, those justices serve 16 years. Some presidents only get one appointment or no appointments. President Trump got three. Second thing about his assignment is that he negotiated a Mideast peace treaty between Israel and UAE. 
that has completely changed the dynamics of the Israeli-Arab relations. Only someone like Trump would have been so bold as to turn decades of political convention on its head and put forth a new equation of relations. As I said in my message last week, what if the election was not about Trump, but about Israel? Why did I pose this question? Because concerning the times and seasons of God, as is told us in Ecclesiastes 3.1, Israel is God's timepiece, not America. Israel is. And so we interpret world events not from America's view, as powerful and as central as she is in the free world, but to always keep an eye on that tidy, tiny little country, Israel. When you read Romans 9 through 11, you get a peek of how central Israel is to God's end-time purposes. Israel is a key part of global revival, and God is opening the door to, Muslim, to the Muslim world in a way previously unimagined. So in my mind, Trump was used by God for the Great Commission. Third thing here to just mention is that revival will not come from the political arena. When a nation puts its hope in politics to save the world, God has but one choice, and that's to bring it down because it's an idol. Only Jesus can save the world. In modern history, revivals have frequently and regularly broken out under despots, unrighteous, and wicked rulers, which is to say that revivals break out under the least ideal and least conducive political environments. And China is the most sterling example. The greatest, strongest, most enduring revival in church history occurred under Mao, who was oppressive, wicked, Church historians thought that the church would be snuffed out when the bamboo curtain came down. Instead, the most powerful revival in history was ignited. Persecution and pressure caused Christians to look to God and depend on, in, depend on him in a way that in times of peace they don't do. Wicked rulers provide great clarity that politics cannot be man's hope. So I hope the idea of the church exercising its power through political avenues is put to rest. God loves America. God loves Canada. But he will not save it through political means. Politics has its place because civil governments have their place. But that's not the hope of Christians. Thus, no matter how any election goes, here in our country or in the United States, whether our candidate wins or not, our hope and joy remains intact and strong. Amen? Well, this becomes a perfect object lesson for us today. Just as the proper understanding of Romans 13 teaches us how to practically act in this political situation, so the Bible teaches us how to act practically in everyday living, which is the title of my message today. Let's get practical. We've gone through the first three chapters of Ephesians, and Paul is giving us this soaring theology about Jesus and the church and God's love for us and how we are blessed beyond measure. It's mind-blowing stuff. It's stuff that will occupy our thoughts and our meditation and our study for the rest of our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who led the resistance against Hitler, ultimately was martyred and killed by 
the Nazi regime. He was asked if there was one book that you would meditate on or could meditate on or could have, which book would it be? And he said the book of Ephesians because it's so deep and so wide and so rich in insight and truth. And so Paul is giving us this amazing dissertation of what it's like for us to be part of God's church. It's mind-blowing stuff. It's the foundation that goes 50 feet down so that we can grow 200 feet high. No one may see how deep our roots are, but they only need to see how tall we are to guesstimate our depth. They only need see our wattage to understand the power plant behind our life. And so last week, after we concluded chapters 1 through 3 and we moved into chapter 4, we see how Paul switches gears. As in, how does the theology of chapters 1 through 3 turn into the practicality of everyday living? Or as theologians like to put it, how does theology turn into doxology? Meaning, how does truth turn into worship on an everyday basis? See, God is not esoteric. He's not just going to leave us in the conceptual or the abstract. He takes these thoughts of truth and then he moves it into our everyday lives so that we can walk in them. In fact, that is probably the key word of chapter 4 and moving into the end of the book. How do we walk in God given these things? That's why you hear these conjunctions, the way Paul writes, therefore, because of, as a result, this is connected to that. Heaven is connected to earth. God is connected to our lifestyle. Well, the answer is given to us here in verses 17 through 32. And this is one of those passages that needs little explanation. Doesn't need much exposition or exegesis because it just speaks straight to us in clear, crisp language. So I'm going to read it, and I want it um, want these words to just sink in for us. In particular, I'm going to read it from the message translation. Uh, just because the way Eugene Peterson translated it just adds some sparkle and makes this passage even more accessible and understandable to us. I'm going to start from the back and read it to the front so that I can convey a few key points after this a, a little bit better. So as we go along, I'm going to read it a little bit more slowly Use it to evaluate yourself. And this is actually how we should read the Bible in our devotional times. Take it in. Think about it. Let it be a mirror. Let it speak to our hearts. So in verse 31 and 32, the Bible says, Make a clean break with all cutting, backbiting, and profane talk. Be gentle with one another sensitive forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as god in christ forgave you see the reason why we may backbite we may gossip we may rage we may use profane talk is because someone has hurt us someone has sent an odd against us or created an odd against us and so we've got this bitterness in our hearts and paul is saying listen that's part of life but realize that just as Jesus forgave you, you need to turn around and forgive others. 
Now, this can be a pretty tall assignment because the things that it may have done against us are pretty grievous, pretty hurtful. But do we have any excuse to not forgive someone if God has forgiven us of all our sins? Forgiveness is the doorway to freedom. So Paul is encouraging us. Make a clean break with all that stuff. Is your mouth filled with cutting, backbiting, and profane talk? Verse 30 goes on. Do not grieve God. Do not break his heart. Did you know that you can break God's heart? His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you. Did you know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you right now? The Bible says that we are God's temple. You know, the Jewish people, what they took great pride in was the temple. First, there was the mobile temple, Moses' temple, in the desert, moving with the people of God. And then Solomon came, and then he built this amazing edifice, the glory of the Jewish people, the temple, where the presence of God came. But you know, that wasn't the end game of God. Under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit came and fell on the people of God at Pentecost. We now become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit lives in you and breathes in you, is an intimate part of your life? He's making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. So much of Scripture is about mindfulness because we're forgetful people. I've been studying Deuteronomy, and over and over again, Moses is told by God, repeat this to the people, remind them of this. Put it on their tassels, put it on their door posts. Why? Because we just plain forget. And so we need to be reminded the Holy Spirit is living in you, and you are his temple. Verse 29, watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps each word a gift. This is one of the most clear ways that we show ourselves to be different from the world. The words that come out of our mouth. Is it foul? Is it dirty? Have you been trained by the Holy Spirit to speak gracious words? Or will someone look and you go, wow, no way. You know, you get these pro athletes out there and they say that they're living for Jesus, and they got Christian tattoos. Then you interview them afterwards, and they're just, their mouth is a stream of just profanity. I go, you got to be kidding me. How is that a witness for God? That's not a witness for God. They're not walking the way that Paul tells us to walk. That's not being a witness for God. 28, did you used to make ends meet by stealing? Well, no more. Get an honest job so that you can help others who can't work. Paul is calling out the Eighth Commandment. Don't steal. Steal is just cheating. You're cheating your own soul. You're cheating your own sense of self-worth. You're cutting yourself down. You're self-sabotaging yourself. Don't steal. Instead, give yourself to hard work and make an honest living. Verse 26 and 27, be angry and yet do not sin, as it's rendered in the New American Standard Bible. Don't use your anger as fuel for revenge, and don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. What was the first sin after Adam and Eve? 
wasn't it Cain and Abel? And Cain got jealous of Abel. He got angry, and therefore he rose up to kill his brother. Anger is a seed of destruction. Now, there's a righteous anger. There's a good kind of anger. But the worldly kind of anger will eat us alive. So God tells us, don't go to bed angry. Don't let the devil get, get a kind of foothold. Comb the seeds of anger out before it can grow. Verse 25, when this adds, what this adds up to then is this. No more lies. No more pretense. Verse 25, what this adds up to then is this. No more lies. No more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we are all connected to each other. After all, why, when you lie to others, you end up hurting yourself. Now, this may seem so basic, right? We teach our kids since they're little, don't lie. Don't say that to mommy and daddy. Show me your candy that you're hiding. You know, where did you put that money? But, you know, there's something so innate about lying. We can take it into our adulthood. We can give shades of truth. And again, here, Paul is, is calling out another one of the Ten Commandments. Are you a liar? Are you prone to lying? Honest living is living in the light. Put these things away, Paul is saying. All that you've learned in chapters 1 through 3, this is how it comes out in chapter 4. This is how we walk. We walk in the light and not in the darkness. We're truthful and we're not liars. And so then 24, kind of a mini summary, take on an entirely new way of life. A God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside. And see, this is such a powerful phrase. Christianity is about living from the inside, not from the outside. We do these things not to get approval from the Father, because we've already been approved. We've already been loved from the very beginning. In fact, like we learn in chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, God had it in our hearts. God had us in his heart. And so we're living from inside out, not outside in. This is not a performance thing. It's not a works thing. But it goes on to say that we need to do this so that our conduct, working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. You know, sometimes God is picky because he's accurately fashioning the character and the person of Jesus in your life. One of my good friends, Ben Goodman, which you know, he was walking along the sidewalk one day. He was chewing gum and he threw it into the bush. No big deal. Another day of walking and chewing gum. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit said, no, stop. Go back and find that piece of gum. What? Why would I do that? So he walks on a little farther, farther, but no, the Holy Spirit keeps speaking to him. So he looks around because he's kind of embarrassed. He turns around, he goes back, and he's on his hands and knees looking for this piece of gum in the bushes. We all have those little details in our life which God is pruning, manicuring, working accurately in our life because he's fashioning the character of Jesus. God is not into approximating Jesus' character in your life. He wants it to be fully fashioned in you this is practical stuff this is the grit of life stuff it teaches us clearly how to live each day with those around us how to respond to situations how to act with poise and grace in a way 
and in a way that brings glory to God. <coughs> These are all counter-cultural behaviors. Rather than spewing and backbiting, gossiping, holding grudges, cursing, swearing, stealing, acting out, we do the opposite. We act in the opposite spirit. This is what makes us stand out as Christians by how we act. As it says in verse 24, put on the new self. The moment you came into Jesus, the moment you were baptized into the waters of repentance, a new man came upon you. The old is washed away. The new has come. You have new life and new vitality and new grace and new power. Lay hold of that. That's why in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, Paul says, reckon yourself dead to these things, but alive unto God. No one else in the world has that power. If the Holy Spirit is not in them, they cannot do this stuff. But God puts himself in us so that he can create that image through our lifestyle. Let me make three observations about what we've just read as to how we come into this Christ-inspired practical living model. Number one, relationship, relationship, relationship. It's all about relationships. God cares about people and wants us to treat people well. This is the second great commandment, Matthew 22. This is what set Jesus apart. Right? This is what set Jesus apart. He wasn't just coming to give rules and regulations. He actually cared for the people. He showed empathy. He showed compassion. He got down into the dirt with them. He sat in their valleys, and he healed them, and he touched their affliction. I was just reading in Mark chapter 2, I believe, chapter 1 and chapter 2, how this leper came up to him, end of chapter 1. And you don't touch a leper. Back then, they didn't have the medicines and the cures to get rid of leprosy. I've studied it as a microbiologist. I know the actual bacterium that creates it. It's a very nasty disease. So there's no medicines, and you don't touch them. They're outcasts. But Jesus touched the leopard first, and then he spoke the word of healing. He could have healed him first and made the leper all clean and then given him a big hug. But no, God's heart was to love him first and to make him feel accepted. And then, oh, by the way, I'm going to heal you. It's all about relationships. Jesus loves peace and not acrimony. He loves unity and not division. He loves harmony, not strife. His focus is on love and not hate. Everything about this passage that we just read is about mending and bridging and caring and nurturing and healing, building, helping graciousness this has to be our mark as Christians and we do it by how we behave second thing just as worldly behavior comes from worldly thinking so Christian behavior comes from Christian thinking verses 17 through 19 NASB so I say this again Paul is speaking and affirm in the Lord that you are no longer, that you are to no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves 
up to indecent behavior for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So note the main connection here between futility of mind and indecent behavior. You don't have the right thoughts. You start doing things that are wrong. Your conscience is maybe bothered, but you put it off. You become callous, and so you continue on in that behavior, and then the lust and deceit grows inside of you, and you need more of what is wrong to satisfy you, and then you start doing it with greediness, as in you just keep going on and on and on. The connection between futility of mind and indecent behavior is given to us so clearly here. You can't act right if you don't think right. Bad behavior comes from wrong thoughts. Conversely, right action comes from right thoughts. Thus, the behavior we just read about comes from a Christian framework. Our minds are so key to our behavior because that is where our thinking comes from. That's why, in verse 23, Paul says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Third point here. Where does proper thinking come from? It comes from proper teaching. Again, in verses 20 through 23 from the Message Bible, you learned Christ. My assumption is that you have paid careful attention to him, been well instructed in the truth precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance Everything, and I mean everything, connected with the old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. I just love how this is translated. It's so clear. We've got to get rid of it. Everything from the old life has to go. It's rotten through and through. And how is it that we can ship out the old stuff and bring in the new? Because we've given ourselves to learning Christ. That we've paid careful attention to the words of the Bible. Every verse, every half verse, every phrase, we meditate and think on it. Because God's truth is so baked in to these verses and these words. This is the fertilizer to bring transformation to our life. Paul's point is out with old thinking and in with new thinking. Because proper teaching leads us to right thoughts, and right thoughts leads us to right behavior. I think this is why Paul loved being a teacher. Because it led to very practical outcomes. Go into a region, start a church, plant a church. These 10, 20, 100 people that before were just totally pagan, now because of the teaching of Jesus, now because their thoughts were renewed, now because they were putting on the new self, they led a completely different lifestyle. And now they were a testimony unto God. The whole purpose that God raises up a covenant people is to bear witness to God's truth. And here it was, a new spiritual community, now walking in the ways of Jesus. Praise the Lord. What could be more satisfying or gratifying? So I think Paul loved being a teacher. And this is why we need to study the Bible every day. Go to our cell groups. Listen to sermons on Sunday. It helps us renew our minds so we can live better lives every day. Not live it in the way the world lives, but the way Jesus did. Amen?
Let me end with this. Did you know that when you act right, even if it's hard, even if it costs you, you feel right. And when you feel right, you feel happy. The big word for acting right is righteousness. God is passionate for us to act righteously, not, not so that we become prudish or rules-driven. It's so that we can enjoy happiness and bring glory to God by how joyful we are living for him. So knowing how to live practically is not just about life skills, it's about joy. Jesus said in John chapter 4, 14, verse 6, I am the way, how to act. I am the truth, our thoughts. And I am the life, our happiness. So living practically has this powerful outcome of joy. It's not just about doing the right thing outwardly. So my encouragement to you this week is to go back and reread this portion of Scripture and apply it to your life every single day, and you'll be the happiest person around. Jesus, we come to you. We thank you for how real and tangible your word is. We thank you how Paul had such a shepherd's heart, and he was able to break down these amazing concepts and truths about God and about the kingdom and to bring it down to our level and what it means to walk out this Christian life. Lord, as this message was shared and as your spirit was speaking to different people, I pray, God, that you just reinforce those highlights that you made. This morning there were some things where we felt like, oh, I need to improve on that. I need to remember that. I need to get back into this. Make that a note to yourself this week to continue to give yourself to this process of being renewed in him and putting on the new self. And if you're watching this stream and you've been feeling this pull to God but haven't fully surrendered your life to him, but you feel just this magnetic pull towards Jesus, then I invite you to give your life to him and just say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I put off my old ways and I put on you. So we thank you, God, this morning for your word. In your name we pray. Amen.